Throughout Human Resources, we've explored the lives of black Africans under transatlantic slavery, mostly by looking at their experiences on plantations or as domestic household servants. Prior to the slave trade cranking into gear, the physical presence of black Africans in Britain was continual, but minimal. Colonization and slavery, however, introduced new routes of migration. As novelist and writer, Amber Lavana Sivanandan once said, We are here because you were there. And as chattel slavery took hold, a steady drip of black individuals made their way to Britain. They came often as servants or slaves, although sometimes as free people. Once here, though, technically, they were all free. English law didn't support slavery within the country's borders, but in practice, slavery often continued via indentured servitude or simply through racial power dynamics. Even if not officially enslaved in name, being an isolated black person who has no money or assets and whose community networks were only through the domestic household in which they worked ensured a complete lack of what we'd understand to be freedom. We've talked a little about what the lives of such black people were like in season two's episode, Right of Way. In this episode, we focused on the experiences of the black servants who found themselves in England's countryside stately homes. In this episode, though, we're venturing onto the bustling city streets of 18th century London, trying to uncover the traces of the black individuals who became part of working class communities and sometimes elite society of the British capital, the seat of power that directed the trade that usually had brought them to these shores in the first place. How, I'm wondering, did the enslaved become everyday people? I'm Moya Lothi-McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history. This is Human Resources. focus on a demographic whose histories are often the last to be told, black women. I'm Montez. I am a PhD researcher at the University of Birmingham and I specialise in black British history looking at black women in 18th century London. Montez Marche has dedicated her academic career to what she calls diverse histories. I asked her to take us back to the early 1700s when the transatlantic slave trade was ramping up. There are presences of black women right the way back from the Tudor period. And there's a continual presence right the way into the 19th century. So there's a constant presence of black women in 18th century London, 18th century Britain. It's difficult to note exactly how many the proportion sizes of the black population as a whole, but particularly black women, as there were so many black people that were left out of the records. But as the period progresses, you do see more a marked increase in the recorded presence of black women, women in archival and contemporary materials. But that might as well be also to do with the increases in records that are made of black women. And so there might be that parallel to consider. But there obviously is as well increased in migration. So if we are looking, say, for example, the end of the American War of Independence, there was a wave of migration from America, from black loyalists who came to Britain 
but it's very difficult to kind of specify the exact estimations. What was the everyday experience of these black women in 18th century London? Where do they live? What are they doing? They would have been kind of immersed into the communities, into the daily lives of the 18th century world. A lot of black women came over as domestic servants from the Caribbean or the Americas to be part of these households. But then we also have women who very much engaged in every kind of possible employment for women. So as casual labourers, as barmaids, just kind of on the fringes of employment, particularly as female employment was kind of so limited in this period. What did that integration look like in practice? We have a lot of examples of black women who were baptised in local parishes or got married or had children and they became a part of the neighbours of the community precisely because in mainland Britain there wasn't institutional slavery so there wasn't the laws that kind of negated the woman's rights to be a human you know and interact or to be kind of a part of everyday society and in that way they were able to kind of have a provisional freedom around society to kind of move and interact there was only I think one specific law that minimized or limited the presence of black women that was John Fielding's Lambeth house for girls refused the presence of Negro women or mixed race girls, as the term was rephrased, or black women. So yeah, that was kind of the main law that kind of limited black women specifically. But that wasn't really an official kind of civil law. It was more just kind of in that particular institution. They became a part of British society and were able to kind of move and integrate. But obviously, that came with its own challenges of prejudice and discrimination, which would likely happen on a kind of local level. But it's very difficult to find those sources that specifically talk about those moments. In Britain, the lines around slavery were blurred. Technically, those who enslaved in the likes of the Caribbean were free once they docked on these shores. Was this legislative freedom actually respected when they arrived here? It's absolutely a blurring of lines there, in that obviously when there were people who were enslaved, technically in the Caribbean, who were brought over to Britain. But entering into Britain, it was very difficult to legally support slavery because there was no laws in Britain that actually confirmed slavery. So when people came, black women in particular, came to Britain and tried to create their own freedom or escape their confinement, it was entirely possible for them to become free people, particularly there were examples of black women who ran away from their masters or their enslavers and possibly then became a part of the community. But there were also women who came over as free women who potentially were maybe the wives or the mistresses of white men or just came over because they had been freed and came over to begin a life in Britain. And so it does become difficult to discern who exactly was free and who exactly was enslaved, particularly as domestic service kind of included everyone into kind of one bubble of activity or functionality. And so the only way to really discern if a black woman was free or enslaved would be if she was gaining wages, because she would have been doing the exact same things other black free servants or white servants or other things like that. We know from previous episodes that there were instances of mixed race women who inherited property in Britain because they were the daughters of slave owners. Do we see any differences in the treatment of mixed race women versus black women in 18th century London? Or are these racial distinctions not recognised? 
It's difficult to say, as I think it's because the lines are kind of different, were very, very binary, that they were white people and then they were black people. And mixed race people were very much kind of brought into the category of black people. But there were obviously terms that differentiated. So the term mulatto would have been used to differentiate between a person who was mixed race and a person who was not. And it kind of very much depended upon personal circumstances. There were people who very much commented on say, a mixed-race person's complexion against a person who was not mixed-race and kind of used those two. So a phrase that would be used would be tawny for a mixed-race person. But again, this category became very much blurred because we also have to consider women of Asian heritage who also use the same term. And so the lines become very, very blurred because ideas of race were not as biologically defined, but they also weren't necessarily considering ideas of ethnicity either. In terms of kind of looking at what the sources tell us anyway, it does become difficult to not only figure out how the British community would have engaged with the differences in racial in complexion in, in heritage, but also in terms of how they would have distinguished from each other, because there might have been a similar treatment, but also as well, it depended particularly on class, particularly for black women. So if, for example, a uh, black woman was an heiress or had property. So, for example, like Dad Elizabeth Bell, she would have been present in the higher echelons of society and her complexion may not have been a much of a feature of commentary in terms of social conversation, but in terms of visual presentation, her blackness was very much centralised in her portraits and it would have been a visual comment more than it would have been a spoken comment. Whereas if you were to kind of parallel that with working class women or women who were just workers, a lot of parish registers, a lot of social records tend to comment on a woman as black. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to (laughs) pretend that I don't right now. Hold it in, hold on. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. The point Montaz makes about class is so important. I want to know what evidence shows us about the social class most black women would have belonged to at this time. I asked Montaz if she had any examples of specific women whose stories could open up our understanding of the average experience of a black woman in 18th century London. In terms of class, the upper class black women, they were much smaller but more visible 
population of women. So a good example would be Catherine Despard, who was the wife of Colonel Edward Despard. She was recently portrayed on the BBC production Poldock. And so her story was that she was an heiress from Jamaica who was a free woman. And she married Colonel Edward Despard and came to Britain with her son, James, and became part of the London Correspondence Society, which Edward helped found. And her position was that when Edward went to prison for plotting rebellion, she would fight for her husband's rights in prison and she'd write letters to Parliament. She'd write letters to lots of kind of noble men of society to fight for her husband's cause. And in all of those examples of her engaging with society, her race was never brought into question. As far as her position was concerned, she had a recognised station as the wife of Edward Despard. And that gave her the position and the authority to communicate and fight for her husband's cause. And that was a very prestigious position to be in because of the status that her husband's position afforded her. And in being able to speak and talk out, she held a really important position as a wife rather than as a black woman. How do we know where black people congregated in this period? Where do we even dig for that evidence? Parish records? Parish records are hugely surprising in that they've always been a source of interaction for historians for centuries. But in spite of all of this research and that people using these sources for their own various forms of research, black people have always noticed a very distinctive presence of black people in parish records. So, for example, there would be a black woman's name and then literally written a black woman. And for that to not have been reference or kind of engaged with as much as the parish records allow because there's so many different records so for example the London Metropolitan Archives have a project called Switching a Lens which looks at parish records for different black people or people of Asian and African heritage and they have about 2,000 references in the parish record that they've looked at so far and so to have all of these records sitting there in these massive books and for us to not be kind of engaging with this clear presence of population was fascinating to me because it was subtle. It was very much a distinctive presence of difference and race and ethnicity in these records. And as well, it kind of parallels with the newspaper archives as well. I found that quite interesting in runaway advertisements being so clearly referenced in newspapers and they would go into incredible detail about the dress and the age and the physical present um, the physical features of each of these women because obviously they were looking for them but in the context of sources where the references to black women are so sparse and so brief and referential to have this detailed description of a woman and you can kind of almost envision her obviously based on somebody else's gaze but to have that kind of detail was really enlightening to contextualize listeners will recognize these runaway advertisements we spoke about them in season three episode three runaway from his master mr james knox in pelham street on friday morning last a negro east india boy named james hamlet about 16 or 17 years of age about five foot two inches high much pock fretten in need and limped a little with the right leg, was dressed in a dark, thick-set frock and waistcoat, brown cloth breeches, gold-laced hat, and curled hair too paid before. And as the said Negro boy is also charged with embezzling several sums of money, the property of his master, 
whoever will apprehend him and bring him before Sir John Fielding shall receive one guinea reward. In England, the rights of the enslaver were a lot muddier, as we've discussed. I asked Montaz, what do these newspaper ads for runaway slaves tell us about the legal position of black women who had come here under enslavement? Obviously, with these runaway advertisements, there were, as well as black women and black men who were part of these advertisements, there were also advertisements for other servants of other ethnicities, particularly white servants, who also ran away. So this was very much a genre or a category of advertisement in newspapers. So the terminology of, of slave or enslavement was not something very often referenced for black people in the archives, in papers, in contemporary materials. And so in some of these runaway advertisements, you would see the word slave sometimes used and that kind of allowed us to really distinguish that there were enslaved people in Britain as a conclusive proof of that. And it stated that a lot of these women were not necessarily free to move or they felt that they were trapped in their environment, but they were also surrounded by people who were not, who had the social freedom, but also were on the same kind of, I suppose, social level as them technically. But in terms of their circumstances, they were not free. Freedom was very much in their grasp and very much visual. And so if the prospect of running away meant that they could actually become a part of this world if they were able to separate themselves from this household or this employer or this slaver. That's a very important context to consider is that despite being enslaved, it might be psychological, it might be in terms of the economics, in terms of their history of being an enslaved person, possibly in the Caribbean or even in Britain, there was constant exposure to the ideas of freedom, to the possibility of it. And their rights, though hindered by personal circumstances, could potentially be reclaimed. I've got some of these runaway notices up and they're so telling to read. Here's how one from 1758 goes. Runaway, two Negro girls and sisters named Jane and Maria Gray. Jane is short and well set with the evil in her neck and now very much swelled. 18 years of age and speaks good English. Maria is slender and rather taller than the other, 16 years of age. Whoever will bring either of the above Negro girls, either Captain Barrett near Shadwell Church or John Fielding Esquire, shall receive one guinea reward for each. They are Captain Barrett's property and any person harbouring or secreting could be prosecuted for the same. These notices help give us an idea of where people were based within London and the types of establishments that were used to send runaway slaves to once they'd been captured, like alehouses, coffee houses, and other public spaces. John Fielding is almost certainly the magistrate John Fielding, founder of what's considered England's first professional police force, a group called the Bow Street Runners. Fielding had even written about his fears that black slaves brought to England would get a taste of freedom and rebel against their masters. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now.
You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you will instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. I want, above all else in this episode, to know how black women in this era lived, to bring to life their everyday experience, the streets they walked, the church spires they looked up at, the taverns and theatre they might have spent leisure time in. I asked Montaz, do we have any evidence of that when it comes to black women in 18th century London? There are very few traces of black women or detailed examples of black women engaging in leisure. But there are examples of a black woman in black baptisms where it went beyond just a kind of practical example of social assimilation or integration. It was actually a celebration of black women where they were coming together and dressed up and they were being godparents and they had a sense of community and family in that. And there were examples of black women who engaged in social events. There are examples of black women who existed outside of the traditional working world, to the working world of domestic service, of casual labour. So for example, there are women who were sex workers who engaged very much in the cultures and the leisures of Covent Garden, of the West End and of the aristocratic circles, who in themselves were known to attend masquerade balls or known to attend the theatre or be kind of immersed in this world. And in being kind of sex workers or courtesans, so for example, Black Harriet was a famous Black sex worker and became one of the first black boards in London to kind of own her own establishment and had 70 clientele from the highest in the land to the everyday manners. She was able to cultivate this image of herself within the leisure and the luxurious cultures of the aristocratic world and the 18th century. And so in these individual circumstances, we gain a glimpse that they're probably more likely to have been other examples of black congregation of black women engaging in leisure maybe engaging in music engaging in social events and things like that beyond what has been written in the archives after the initial abolition act passed in 1807 did the lives of black women in british cities change at all do we see a difference in the way communities are being formed is there increased post-abolition migration there's definitely a change in tone, a change in engagement with society. I think there's obviously the sense of what post-abolition, there's a sense of integration. There's definitely an increased presence of black women and an increased commentary on the presence of black women engaging in society. But I think that it's still, particularly post-abolitionists, they still very much dominate the same spaces and they're still kind of defined by these working identities as well as the same kind of social identities because these stereotypes and all these labels, all these images have been so dominant 
for such a long time. And also because a lot of these women, when coming into 19th century Britain, would have come in a similar social standing. But as we enter into the 19th century, ideas of race and ideas of difference become a lot more scientific, they become a lot more biological. And in that, there would have likely been more ideas of more likely discriminations, more likely ideologies that stated that black women were biologically inferior. And this kind of idea of scientific racism would have been definitely permeated contemporary conversation in a much more definitive way than it did compared to before the abolition. We've been speaking specifically about black women in 18th century London throughout this episode. Is it important for us to consider these experiences through the lens of gender, especially as our conception of gender may differ from the people who wandered about Covent Garden over two centuries ago? I think it's really important to engage with the conversations of gender, precisely because this is a population that we're dealing with. And these histories of black women are precisely what laid the foundation for a lot of the histories that we engage with today. This is a history that stems to 300 years and the history of women like me. And it's understanding and understanding that legacy and that genealogy that the presence that has been here for so long and that made up an entire population. I mean, the history of women for a long time has been left in the shadows and deemed unimportant. And as we starting to illuminate more of women's history, Black women hold a significant place in that and they shouldn't be overlooked precisely because they have not been deemed, you know, a priority or significant by historical commentators. They've left an important mark in British society. How does their experience compare to that of black men in the same period and place? The story is a little bit more different in that black men, because of ideas of patriarchy, because of the idea that I suppose black women were more capable, I suppose, and particularly in terms of domestic service, black men were favoured above black women to come to Britain and to be servants. They were deemed quite fashionable. I mean, black servants in general were deemed fashionable, but particularly black men. There were greater examples of black male social mobility. And you have examples uh, like Lado Equiano or Ignacio Sancho, who began their lives as enslaved people, but then became these representatives of black voice and black mobility in the national center, particularly becoming a shopkeeper, becoming these famous letters. And there were many more examples of black men holding different positions in different jobs and roles in society. And in a lot of ways, that has been what's defined black history of the 18th century is a very male gaze. But the history of black people in the 18th century world is much more diverse than that. And women contribute a lot to that conversation and it's important that we engage with that fact and that distinctly feminine experience of wives of mothers of neighbors who hold a particular emphasis in the society I think is important that we recognize what they've contributed and the place they held. You've dedicated this portion of your academic career to studying the lives of black women in urban Britain during the height of the enslavement of black Africans in the British Empire. What are the legacies that you want to uncover for the world to see in the stories of these women? For me, the legacy that I draw from a lot of the research that I engage with is this legacy of resilience, of defining identity beyond 
the labels that have been placed on black women. I think that black women have, from even just the 18th century, have been positioned in a place of difficulty where there have been series of structures of oppression that have kind of been placed upon their lives. And yet, despite these challenges, black women have still managed to assert themselves into a communities and define their position, their family, and overcome a lot of these challenges. And I think that's a legacy that continues right the way through to today. And I think that just being this idea of integration, the idea of that even in a position in the society which deemed black women as inferior, they proved themselves, even at a local level, even just engaging just with their local neighbours, that these ideas are wrong and kind of proving that there is so much more to our history and our story than have been stated or been given the space to breathe. And I think it's only natural and only in its significant that we start to embrace that, just even that in itself as a legacy is incredibly important. And I think that's something that continues to inspire me doing this research and continuing to kind of, you know, face the challenges of the 21st century. That is something that I definitely find inspiring in many of these women. What is history? A patchwork collection of stories, claims, counterclaims, assumptions, and direct testimony. When it comes to the people whose stories weren't given the contemporary weight to see them recorded in granular detail, there's so much piecing together that must be done. And even then, only fragments of lives shine through, records of births, deaths, marriages, separations. Into those gaps, we bring our imagination and breathe colour back into the faces and existence of those long past from both life and memory. Next time, we're off to the races. Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lothian-McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumber. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Sound design by Ben Yolovitz. This is a Broccoli production, part of the Sony Podcast Network.